Hey Rejects, I'm Brent. And I'm Dave. Welcome back to Rejected Central. Today's subject might be the most recognizable figure in the movie industry like ever. At the very least, he had the most famous mustache in the world until a certain evil dictator came on the scene in the 30s. And it says something that the phrase, quote, he was film, unquote, came up at least four times in my research this week. We're talking, of course, about Charlie Chaplin. So this is going to be part one of a series of Rejected Central episodes called The Bell Curve of Rejection. A bell curve, as you smart and attractive people probably know, is a graph that starts low, goes high, and then goes down again. Thus making the shape of a bell. Right. And you can hit Google for how the bell curve can be used out there in the real world. But for Rejected Central purposes, we are going to apply it to lives, stories, events, describing how a life can start out rejected, for example, rise above said rejection, and then descend right back into it again. And today we're talking about Charlie Chaplin. With Dave as our resident expert, and I just learned this week that he in fact has actually studied and presented stuff about Charlie Chaplin, which is really great because... Hey, I don't actually know that much about the guy, but mm -hmm. I find him really interesting. Learned a lot this week, but Dave is going to be the one we lean on today. Before we get into Charlie Chaplin, though, I actually announced in kind of a soft way this week about the launch of the podcast, and I already have a story from somebody who in was interested in sharing their rejection story with us. Uh, my friend Bart, who I taught with overseas for a number of years in Kuwait, uh, he learned about Rejected Central this week, and he sent us this little story. I just dreamed last night that my son was in college and his English professor had a bring your parent to class day because as you do in college. Right? Uh, so I went to his class and the prof asked me if I had any poetry to read and I couldn't remember any of mine. <laughs> Eventually the prof just asked me to leave. Uh, I woke, went to the bathroom, of course, and then wrote this. Yeah, already <laughs> getting the story. And he is, uh, he's, uh, he's got young kids mm -hmm. like I do. So he's already dreaming about them in college. And I find it really interesting <laughs> that he was dreaming about them in literature class, right? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just picturing, because I went back, as you know, I went back to school myself a few years ago, and I'm just picturing my younger than my professors telling my wife what a, you know, what a bad boy I was in class. I just, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> the crossing of worlds. Oh, Yeesh. neither the two shall combine, right? Well, the, I guess it, the literature, and I can relate as a writer, might be the literary equivalent of you know, the dream where you're in your class and you're in only in your underwear or something like that. <laughs> I'm cold and frightened. I'm cold and frightened and I have no idea what this test is about. Absolutely. Oh yes, and the test, of course, not just oh, the underwear. Of course, yeah. So today we're talking about Charlie Chaplin. He was born in April of 1889 and it's, it's notable that he did not have a birth certificate and so his birth date, um, April 16th, was not 100% certain. Um, Interesting story about his birth certificate, though, when he, and I suspect it was part of the whole communist McCarthy yeah. fallout, um, MI6, which is, of course, Britain's foreign intelligence service, as opposed to MI5, which is like 
I guess like the FBI, it sort of spies on its own citizens. <laughs> um, they were looking into him and they couldn't find a birth certificate either. And so uh, what do you have to do these days to get looked at by MI6? We probably shouldn't talk about it out loud now that I've said that out loud. Not on public or private airways. All right, I'm going to edit that out yeah. later. <laughs> so Charlie Chaplin, love child uh, perhaps, or a child of prostitution, had a rough, really, really rough childhood. Um, I also, in addition to, you know, he was film and I'm kind of starting to see why that was. I also encountered the the term street urchin Mm -hmm. a lot. Um, and of course, Chaplin's not the only one who gets that designation. It's a bit of a cliche when you talk about street kids sometimes, but for him, it, it, it actually was very much real at that time in London growing up, um, his mother was was into a lot of questionable things. He took the name, as I recall, of a musician, right? He, some, look at my notes here, a music hall artist's name, Charles Chaplin. Yeah. Um, so he had a really rough childhood. And, you know, later on in life, he actually talked quite a bit about that. Um, he found himself often on the wrong end of things. Rege- and even just as an artist, I mean, as a writer, I get it intimately to my very, very core and soul. I I get the idea of putting yourself out there only to be denied or rejected. He had a lot of that as a performer. Yeah. And he, he just so much so that he decided to throw his hat in with a, um, a troupe of actors, I think called the Fred Carno troupe and went to the U S in 1910. So he wasn't famous at that point, of course. Uh, but by the end of 1940, 14, rather, by the end of 1914, this is where I started to encounter. He was film. And by 1915, he was the most famous man in the world. Absolutely. And by 1915, uh, you know, shops everywhere had memorabilia. There was no licensing back then. Keep in mind, folks. Um, You know, he was, yeah, he was the most recognizable figure in the world. Yes. And also, he knew it. And he used that popularity to, to sort of leverage... Uh, finances as you should, you know, you should get paid for your talents. So he was able to use this notoriety to make a lot of money for 1915 standards for sure. It was really interesting kind of going back into the films this, this past week, actually, I I realized, well, I realized a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) I realized that I needed to learn a lot again, which, which is why we're here. But I, I really didn't know a lot of his films. I, I went back in, but then I started like looking at the best of Mm -hmm. in YouTube and realizing, oh, I, I know a lot of this imagery. Yeah. You know, the gears, yeah, the gear imagery in mm-hmm. the, the modern world, right? Or this modern life or... The, mo- yeah. the modern, modern times. Modern times. Thank yeah. you. And and that's the one you sent me. Yes. It's fun Italian translation too on that one, by the oh, way. Oh, well, you're welcome. Yeah. No, that was great. <laughs> but, you know, that though, that imagery and of course his character, the tramp, like that's his thing, right? Like even in, I think, 82 of his films had that character in them. No, sorry, of his 82 films, the vast majority had The Tramp. And and keep in mind that back in, right around the time, around 1915, he was cranking out one film a week. So that, that to, to be able to create such, um, to create, I mean, that's a lot of content, right? If you're, if you're doing one uh, feature film a week uh, as The Tramp, I mean, that's, that's just an incredible amount. I can't even fathom that kind of like workload. And no, and creativity it, I mean, things were simpler to... back then too. Mm-hmm. I mean, nowadays when you put a real movie on and together, you have like the production of it is like 
exceptionally large and complicated. There are unions involved and there are craft services. You have to feed people, house them, tons. Finding, casting talent. Yeah, and they were shorter too, the films. Yeah. Right? Like they were, and silent. So they didn't have to deal with as much nowadays as as of the sound editing. And of course, none at all at first. They'd put, oh. Oh, dear. You may have heard that. We have a wonderful, thundery, lightning-y evening here. So... (laughs) Hopefully the microphones haven't picked up too much, but you may have heard that thunder. But how do you, uh, how do you mark in his life? I mean, we, we're talking about how stratospherically popular he was, mm-hmm. right? I mean, people wanted that mustache alone, like, in, and until Hitler, I actually don't know what the association is, whether that just happened to be a fashionable thing that Hitler also sort of glommed onto or whether there was an influence, I don't know that. But that mustache was so popular uh, it's hard to imagine now, right? For obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. But he was so popular. At what point do we can we put to a line to say, this is where he's at his most popular? Because we're doing the bell curve. So I think the childhood and the fact that he had a really rough childhood, mm-hmm. um, his mother op- didn't take very good care of him. Uh, that's I think that's kind of the rejected childhood, right? Yeah. So we're getting up to the top of the bell curve. We're getting to 1915 and then to 19 into the 1940s and 50s is when he's at his most influential. So we're at the top now. What would you say is the top of his fame? If, if I can go back to the mustache mm-hmm. uh, for a bit, the reason why he had the mustache was to hide the fact that he was so young. Really? He was able, yeah, he was wow. able to hide his features. So that was that just became a part of his costume. Um, that was part of his, because um, everything was exaggerated, right? Like, like, was it the big pants and the tight jacket or was it the other way around? You know, like everything right. was sort of opposite. Exaggerated, yeah. Exaggerated, thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> words, who words, needs them? Yeah, words matter, who knew? <laughs> but um, I would argue, I would, I would, we're not arguing, I would debate that um, we'll Chaplin's- have a, We'll have a spirited discussion. <laughs> shot through yesteryear. Uh, I would suggest that um, the great dictator was his peak up until things went, well, bell curvy. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been said that um, our dictator in Germany loved that that movie. Yes. Um, I encountered that as well. I, somebody wrote that he saw it at least twice mm-hmm. that yep. people knew about, you know. Uh, actually, since we're talking about The Great Dictator, um, yeah, let's have a listen to this. I, I recorded something earlier today, so... And I think I'll preface this. This is from The Great Dictator. This is his uh, speech as the dictator, which, of course, directly lampoons the Nuremberg rallies that Hitler would give and and everything like that. But um, parody at its 1940s finest. There you go. All right. Well, on that note, here it is. The tight, tighten our belton. <laughs> now, I, I, when this was out, it was pretty easy for people to make fun of Germany and Hitler. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to directly mimic 
the style of the person, the to completely make fun of the German language itself, that had to have been incredibly bold. You know, an English actor taking a shot at um, 1930s, 1940s Germany from yeah. the safety of the USA. Ugh. Yeah. You know, that's I can see why he did it. But, you know, in, in best of lists, you know, the great dictator is almost always either at the very top mm -hmm. or at least in the top five. Absolutely. As sort of his greatest achievement. Um, it's not funny, but it's really uncomfortable. I mean, I, I, you chuckle, yeah. but, but, it, but it's dark comedy at, I don't know if I'd say it. I, well, I don't know what those words like finest, but imagine the world tensions at the time too, because the West really still didn't consider what was going on in Europe too threatening. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Chaplin saw it. He saw it. You know. Yeah, and he put it in in a movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, Chaplin was. I read his. I read Chaplin's book, which was surprisingly small on uh, this edu ed edutainment, this <laughs> entertainment <laughs> side, and more about you know who he's met. It was more of a status book. And, you know, like, oh, I met the Viceroy of whatever. It was very good propaganda for himself. For which himself. Is, you know, autobiograph autobiography is often that way, right? I mean, it's it's like the, I mean, especially when you're talking back, you know, in, in the previous century, it was the equivalent of what people do on Facebook and yes. Tinder, right? You, yes. you put forward the best side of yourself mm -hmm. uh, or the most salacious news or gossip to make yourself look better. S sympathetic. Yeah. He, he was quoted, sorry about, sorry to go back no, to the no, dictator no, no. again. Uh, he was quoted in his book as saying, I would have ended, I would have given my life to know what he thought of that movie. He said he would have, he would have ended his life right then and there to discover what our dictator, that dictator, sorry, wanted to know. Oh, I could think we could have fun with the psychology of that actually, because for what reason though? Just for his ego? For, yeah. 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 I, I, I would feel safe in assuming that. I mean, we're going to talk about even what he's at the height of his quote unquote bell curve of success at the, at the top part of the curve. Um, we're talking about somebody who is not a very nice person. Correct. Very self-absorbed. Mm -hmm. Really, really into it. So it's safe to assume that he would have wanted to know purely for ego reasons. Could he have wanted to know for how did that affect Hitler in a larger sense? But I suspect it would have been the other way. Because he was a global star, right? He had that influence. He w yeah, you're right. That would have fed directly into any sort of narcissistic, you know, personality for sure. I mean, I'm not sure. I, <laughs> there, are, there are, I'm, I'm happy to say there are people in my life I don't care what they think about me, but that's just on another. Yeah. That's another wild level I can't comprehend. No, and he would have the reach that we couldn't comprehend either. <laughs> so why wasn't he a nice person? If we're talking about the fact that, you know, for every, oh no, cliche alert, but for every, you know, cloud with the thunderstorm lining, I might be butchering my metaphors a bit there, but it's okay. You know, where was the darkness? Do you think? Where was like the most darkness? On stage or in real life? Like, uh, if we're talking about growing up. Yes. If we're talking about... <laughs> vagueness then, no. Uh, <laughs> just no, just I, go to there. Go to all of the theirs. All of the theirs. Well, his childhood, you know, the street urchin thing, I think I think that was possibly overdeveloped because of the tramp character. You know? Um, I found actually a really great quote, just kind of on that line. Go about, for it. Yeah. 
the motivation about the Tramp character and, and, and where his style came from, that slapsticky, um, you know, wiggly, no nostril, like wiggly mustache and, and just kind of everything around him. Um, so Peter Aykroyd, this is actually one of the, I didn't read many books for this, but Peter Aykroyd, uh, his biography of Chaplin is one of the most cited ones that uh, I encountered in online Vice and The New Yorker and mm. The Guardian. People referred to it. So I went in there and Aykroyd writes about Chaplin's, I guess you could almost say his personality style on screen. Uh, he made a career of drunkenness, simple needs and desires thwarted by an apparently malicious world. Objects become inanimate. Nothing works. Mm-hmm. Nothing fits. Doors close suddenly. This is a world of brutality, lust, and violence. That's the end of the quote. And I think that does point back to that, reflecting that difficult upbringing. And, and you can see it in movies like the uh, modern times at the, at the assembly line, right? You can see the just, I mean, yes, he's making fun of it. He's, he's, he's kind of controlling things, but things just keep going wrong. As a child laborer, you can see where all that inspiration came from, right? Like um, mom in and out of institutions, you know, questionable behavior, that sort of thing. Uh, dad mostly unknown, but yes. died yeah. of, uh, what was it, uh, cirrhosis of the liver from um, alcoholism. Mm-hmm. So there, he had no support. There was, um, there was a story I read where after he put his mom back into an institution, I can't imagine the sort of emotional crush that must have been mm. at someone that age without any sort of support you know left on his own for days without food and 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 things like that waiting for his brother to come home from war like all sorts of things like that's a lot for that's a lot for any adult with coping mechanisms to deal with but a, a child i can't imagine you know like these these feelings must have certainly come out through his comedy and into his adulthood into his private life you know making up some some making up for some sort of lost childhood or a childhood he never had I think you're probably right. I mean, childcare, parenting, all of those things at that time we know are, they were very different than they are now. Mm-hmm. We are helicopter parents. We care far too much sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, I may have to edit that out too. No, we, we love your kids, buddy. <laughs> yes. Well, I love my kids yeah, well, too. We yeah, we all do. Yes, yeah. thank you. <laughs> but it was a different time. And, and it's, it's, it's not quite enough to say that it was a different time for that because kids left on their own kids left out in bassinets on the street to get some sun, um, cages built on balconies. You know, it was just a different way of looking at things. But even by those standards, I think recognizing that his childhood was another level, you know, with the particularly, again, we don't know much about his father, but looking at how his mother was Mm -hmm. in his life. And perhaps to seek some sort of solitude or even just some adult attention got into theater. Right, that he started in theater very young. That's true. And I never made that. And to be specifically a comedian, like you know, some of our some of our greatest comedians, um, they have that sort of inner turmoil, you know, and they have to. I don't know if you call it normalize their like make like uplift their lives by laughing at their pain. Well, do you know John Mulaney? Oh yeah, absolute just genius of comedy, and Mm. I really like him because he very rarely drops his level of comedy into the puerile 
guy humor d jokes Mm -hmm. and just that you know that that really base level stuff he he doesn't swear a lot which i also appreciate Mm -hmm. but but when he does it's a really good one (laughs) but that's that's the best part about rarely using swear words right but he digs so deep into himself right he's not afraid of course to laugh at himself as a comedian Mm -hmm. but i think even even to go a little further with an edge too that's true yeah and Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, Mr. Chaplin lived that edge on and off screen. You know, I think, I think a lot of people, I, I think, I think in, in suffering in, in his early years, he, he in turn inflicted it upon others. I love, uh, we found a nursery rhyme that was told <laughs> about him. Maybe that very perfectly illustrates just that uh, everybody maybe had a sneaking suspicion. I don't know. So the nursery rhyme. Charlie Chaplin, meek and mild, took a sausage from a child. When the child began to cry, Charlie slapped him in the eye. Yes, again, for the time period. And by the way, if you're ever, this is a sidebar, but if you're ever interested in just the most dark, twisted things... And all you've ever seen are Disney movie versions of fairy tales, like Grimm's mm-hmm. fairy tales. Um, yowza. Yeah. Yeah. It was a darker time back then. Yeah. People were not afraid to scare their, their kids. <laughs> it's a form of discipline, eh? Let's go see a Disney movie. Oh, I tell you. Yeah. Um, uh, Revisionist History, another podcast. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell does a deep dive into The Little Mermaid, right? And just oh. how... how uh, how different it is. We could talk a lot about that episode, but just how Hollywood and Disney have taken these incredibly dark, brutal, no pulled punches stories, uh, and just made them into these glossy, you know, put a song on different things. So I would say another good example of early rejection would have been his rejection of like his own self rejection of serving in the military during world war one. Um, of course he was in the States at that time. We've, we've gone back in, in time a little bit here, stepping off the top of the bell curve, I guess <laughs> for a moment, but <laughs> looking at, um, because I think it ties in later on to the communist, uh, uh, McCarthyism, all of that stuff later on as well. He was branded a coward by not volunteering to go back to Great Britain to fight in the war, world war one. Right. Um, getting white feathers as a sign of cowardice and that kind of thing. And then, of course, later on, the fear of going and having to leave the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, also, that perception of, if you think of people being called communist, I, I, almost the parallel of being called a, a coward during wartime, Absolutely. right? And uh, so, yeah, To be a communist in the 50s. You are done. Done. No, absolutely. from anything you hold dear. Blacklisted from industry, everything. Yes. From the country. Yeah, maybe that's an episode we could do. The rejection of ideas other than, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that wouldn't be relevant today at all, would it, Dave? Of course not. No, 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 everything's, yep, it's leveled right out. Absolutely. We live in Star Trek times. Tolerance, tolerance, unity. Through the roof. Absolutely. I would say now that we've we've seen kind of the height of the bell curve with things like The Great Dictator, as well as a number of his just his really high profile movies and successes, I think we're going to start the decline by um, he, he did a black comedy called Monsieur Vadou mm-hmm. uh, and 1947 after the war. 
people weren't ready for it. Right. No, at 1947, a couple of years after World War II, I think people had an expectation of who Charlie should be and what kinds of movies. Silent. Um, I'm, you know, mostly silent, lighthearted. Um, you know, the person with nothing who is, you know, who gave everything, you know? So, yeah, I mean, that must have been, <laughs> that must have been quite a, that must have been quite a, an eye opener. Well, that happens now too, when, when directors or actors sort of suddenly change direction and, and, and the, the audience kind of views it as a betrayal almost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether it is or not, as a writer, I, I'd like to think that I would have the freedom, the artistic freedom to change as I need to. Yeah, but I would be thinking about my readers. But you know, a lot of people, right? Like, you know, I, I will quote The Simpsons up and down, but, you know, it's basically, you know, that episode where he became, he be, Bart becomes famous because of a line. That's the same thing with famous people. You know, we love that same joke. It's like, do the line, you know, do the line. and Do the line. <laughs> no. Right? And, yeah. you know, um, we love to put everybody in their own little, little yeah. box. So we have Chaplin, our expectations of them, right? Chaplin is our lighthearted distraction, right? He's our silent, uh, our si- like I said, our silent movie sweetheart. I can't see him that way anymore, though. You know, like even going, like talking about the dictator saying I couldn't really laugh at it, right? But I mean, that's history. Mm-hmm. That's, sorry, historical clarity. That's and satire, though. Oh, it was. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and watching those movies now, having done the research for this episode, looking at some of this dark stuff, I'm like, oh, okay, you can see it. Mm-hmm. You really can. It's right there in black and white. Dark stuff like his somewhat casual approach to marrying legal-aged women. Ish. Ish. Yeah. So what do we have? We have four wives. Four wives. Yeah. Okay. And we have um, one was 22. Yep. One was 18. Mm-hmm. And then two were 16. Yeah. We're getting into that territory when he married them. But he met, was it Lita? Yep. Was it Mi- Li- Mita? Lita. Oh, that's Lita terrible. Gray. Yep. Lita Gray when she was 12? Yeah. Mr. Chaplin. I think we can, I think we can start talking about the darkness here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't want to psychoanalyze why, but... That's just young. That was young for that time. Yeah. Not the 22-year-old. That, which is perfectly fine. 18, again, that is acceptable. But 16 for, not not for, and I, I don't want to make any vast generalizations here, but there were certain communities that were more, and still are, more accepting of people getting married when they're quite young. And of course, back then it was much, much younger. Lifespans were shorter. But even like to have that happen in an urban environment like Hollywood was not the norm. It was still too far. Even then, even with then. all of the disclaimers I just made, right? right. And, yeah, no, and, too far. And if you're 35 meeting a 16-year-old, I mean, what's the connection there? Honestly, like for real, like what's the connection there? There shouldn't like outside of perhaps – a mentor maybe like a, a a trusted adult that should be the relationship it should not be anything farther than that mm. if we're talking about a 19 year age difference at 35 well and he, i mean for somebody who's exposed to dozens and dozens of of actresses mm-hmm. on a regular basis older women accomplished women yeah it really does say something even for the time doesn't it it, it must have been a com- maybe it was a confidence thing maybe 
Maybe yeah. he never felt like an adult, you know? Well, he certainly had a lot of insecurities that he took out on his wife's, his wife, wife's, <laughs> his wives. Um, like with Lita, uh, papers came out that had been previously hidden about their divorce. Um, somebody found the papers in a bank. Uh, and we've learned a lot about the kinds of things that Lita had to deal with when she was married to him. Um, her divorce papers, um, I'm going to just read a section here. So Chap, oh, I'm so sorry. Chaplin met Lita Gray when she was eight years old. <clears throat> Ooh. When she, this is from a website called the Family Law Guys. When she was 16, Chaplin got her pregnant. Chaplin was 35 at the time. So under California law, Kaplan could have been prosecuted for statutory, and this is still the case today. He pleaded with Gray to have an abortion, but Gray's... And this is all from those papers, by the way. I hope I said that at the start. But Gray's mother told Chaplin that if he didn't marry her, he would be reported to the police. And fearing prosecution, Chaplin had a discreet marriage in Mexico on, in 1924, and the child was born the following May. In 1927, Gray, fire, Gray filed for divorce, while the basic information to the divorce was public at the time, original divorce papers were recently discovered in an abandoned bank in Los Angeles. In the papers, Gray alleged that Chaplin made, quote, revolting, degraded, degrading, and offensive, quote, sexual requests and forced her to perform illegal sex acts that he had apparently performed with five prominent moving picture women before the couple got married. This included such things as asking for a threesome uh, and a number of other things that were shocking for, especially for the time period. Mm -hmm. Gray was allegedly told by Chaplin, all married people do these kinds of things. You are my wife and you have to do what I want you to do. Wow. Now, the idea of the patriarchal head of a household demanding the woman do things is not foreign and unusual, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But to hear it from somebody who's such a, a prominent figure is beyond the pale. Absolutely. And, and so opposite of what our perception of what he must have been. Uh, yeah, again, that contrast, right? Mm -hmm. Like this visual thing of who Charlie... And hey, I'm really glad that you actually have a more deeper look at Charlie than I did because mm -hmm. I really only knew him from the tramp. Yeah, same. You know, the mustache, the tramp, the goofiness and all of those things. But you, you know, like there's so much more. And, and, and it's, yeah, it's really quite something to learn about these things. How ironic you worked in black and white film. <laughs> it's such a, such a difference, eh? Yeah. yeah, no, that's true too. Yeah. A 1920s, and this is another thing we found, 1926 interview with Vanity Fair, Chaplin gave this description of his dream woman. I am not exactly in love with her, but she is entirely in love with me. Oof. And to say that out loud, right? Yeah. That's power. That's... You know, that's, uh, that would be peacocking today, wouldn't it? You heard, you know, no, expression? I don't know that term. Peacocking. So, uh, you know, when, uh, when I mean, somebody. I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, when somebody's strutting, you know, the peacock feathers, that come right out. That's, that's what that is. And, and when you consider, well, I mean, today, I mean, I imagine by scale, it's just as bad, but you can imagine what kind of, uh, media reaction that must've been to say something like that. Or maybe it was considered normal because of. Uh, because of what we thought, because what they thought the roles of men and women were like in 19, well, almost a hundred years ago now. I, I mean, I, 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 as I said, I, I know that there have been historical um, realities about how men think women should be in a particular relationship, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, but even even for the time period, for him to sort of just say, I know who I am and she better love me for that. It's still bold. Yeah, and, and certainly, again, narcissistic. Extremely. Oh, at the very like, least, yeah. Drunk with power, you know, and celebrity. And as as someone who probably grew up hearing no all the time, having people who couldn't, who would fall all over him and couldn't say yes to him. Yeah, I, I can see it, especially with that narcissism. It's, it's an uncomfortable thing nowadays too, right? The yeah. expectation. We have had quite a lot of things come out in the media in the last, I don't know, particularly five to 10 years about that expectation of what fame should get you, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, a lot of really uncomfortable things. So after the black comedy, his popularity started to really decrease. He's got these marriages. And again, more details are starting to come out about these things as well. People are still going to see his films in droves, though. Mm -hmm. Decides to leave because he's about to be arrested as a communist sympathizer. And for his young marriages, too. I mean, that certainly must have been the fuel. True enough. That must have been (laughs) that must have been that must have been like the uh, it must have ignited all that. Well, we couldn't have helped for sure. Mm hmm. Although it's really an interesting thing that he was so frightened to go back to the United States that he sent Lita back for all his wealth, right? Like for the the money buried in the yard. Mm -hmm. Um, Recognizing, starting to recognize at that point that his position was just so uncertain. Yeah. Yeah, his freedom. Uh, In Chaplin's own words, it's interesting you mentioned that you read his parts of his autobiography. I did it again. Autobiography. Yep. Um, so uh, we had his own words about marriage, but here is about himself. In this record, I shall tell only what I want to tell, for there's a line of demarcation between oneself and the public. Okay, that's not new. No, no, I don't think we need to worry that that's news. There are some things which, if divulged to the public, I would have nothing left to hold body and soul together, and my personality would disappear like the waters of the rivers that flow into the sea. So some self-awareness about, wouldn't it be nice if I could tell you, almost a tease of darker things and a recognition all at the same time. Yep. However, here I must state that I have no morals in the sense that I abide with them in awe. I respect no book of rules for they have been written by somebody else. And that's, Oof. yeah, no, that, yeah, I have no morals and I, give, I write my own rules. And yet he's afraid, and yet he's afraid, you know, I don't abide by rules, but I'm going to keep quiet. You know, that's, again, narcissistic and no, and very self-aware. Yeah. And then later, later years, uh, the decline of the bell curve, so to speak, he decreasing popularity, um, becoming more estranged from the public that had lifted him up so high. Um, He was, of course, brought back for recognition at one point when it was safe for him to do so the lifetime oscar in the, the lifetime 70s? that's right was that in the 70s just before yep. he passed i think yeah. yeah yeah so he was he was able to reclaim some i don't like the word redemption but i'm going to say it anyways reclaim a little bit of redemption uh to a public that at that point was probably still largely unaware of just kind of who he was mm-hmm. right i mean he, even even then as he was just a nightmare in switzerland which is where he set up camp after being well self-exiled right he mm-hmm was miserable, constantly getting in fights with his neighbors, with the local town council, just being a royal pain in the keister because of who he is and and reading about things that he would be able to demand roads be built or sewers put in and actual infrastructure projects. 
um, despite his falling star at that point. Yeah, his his influence, right? Like, yeah. and and also he's newsworthy. You know, I, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I guess. I guess you know. You know, despite his hiding in Swi- a very <laughs> our very neutral friends in Switzerland, <laughs> <laughs> it's not like today where any bad press is still good press. Bad press was bad press back then, and you don't want. Well, that's an interesting statement. Oh, mm-hmm. we may have to explore that sometime. Absolutely. Bad press was still bad press. Ooh, I'd like to do that. Okay. Because yeah, because it's it's just almost a truism nowadays to say. Any press is good press. Absolutely. Um, but is that true? Ooh, hmm, rejecting good press for bad... Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about we'll it. We'll suss out the title. We will. <laughs> so there's a number of uh, pictures of him later on in life uh, looking extremely lonely. Just pictures that have been taken, I assume by the equivalent to paparazzi at the time, from a distance just of him on his estate, just looking increasingly lonely and isolated, right? And the stories back that up. And it's likely a lot of that was documented by Aykroyd as well. Yes. Uh, he, who was his official document documentarian. Did yeah. I get that right? I think you did. Whoa. I'm not going to correct you if you didn't. <laughs> I don't know if you didn't. I don't like to be corrected. No. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding, obviously. Can you imagine having your own author, you know, following you around, having your own person to document you? Like, I mean, you want to talk about sympathy. Yeah. Perhaps yeah. that's how we got. It's been the plot of quite a number of, of TV shows and movies, right? Mm-hmm. Of where somebody who is so well known either gets interested, gets interest from a publisher who gives them a writer to follow them around, or they pay for it themselves because they just can't stand not to have their story told. Well, someone, someone, you know, poking the bear. Yeah. Keep, keep your name just out there. Yes. Yeah. There, yeah. Are, there are ways. Uh, so in a, in a final twist of interestingness, Chaplin died in Switzerland on Christmas Day in 1977 at the age of 88. Eight. Um, so, but, but there's no final for Charlie Chaplin because <laughs> on the 1st of March, 1978, so a few months later, his coffin was dug up and stolen from its grave. The body was held for ransom in an attempt to extort money from his widow, Una. Oh, that's right. Una is the one he ended life with. Yes. Right? That, so that was I, a long... That sounded really dramatic. That's not what I meant. He, <laughs> he, he was, she was, they were still married when he finally died. Yes. Yes. Uh, the, the pair were caught in a large police operation in May, and Chaplin's coffin was found buried in a field in the nearby village of Noville. It was reburied in the Corsier Cemetery in a reinforced concrete vault. Wow. Yep. Yeah, he needed to do that so nobody would steal his body again. Charlie Chaplin, the sequel. all right well thanks dave i think uh, i think that does it okay well that was fun it was and will be today's show has been sourced from all over including, as we've discussed, Peter Aykroyd's excellent biography of Chaplin, as well as online at Vice, The Family Law Guys, The New Yorker, all sorts of other places. He is one of those people that you can find lots about lots and a lot about a lot of places. (laughs) Uh, And of course, Dave's gargantuan brain. Thank Thank you, you, Dave, for being that font of knowledge with this particular subject and all subjects. Rejected Central is a human non-AI podcast. <laughs> I I called it a human podcast, not really understanding. I just kind of did it to be funny. Uh, 
maybe subconsciously having all of the stories about chat GPT and stuff percolating in my brain. It's really important. We're real. I, I'm real. I swear. I'm real too. Good. Uh, let us know what you think by dropping a line through social media or email at rejectedcentral8 at gmail.com. And as always, stay up to date and subscribe at rejectedcentral.com. Uh, and finally, like you heard at the beginning of the show, uh, feel free to send us stories. We love rejection stories. And like Bart's, if you can find kind of a neat thing to do with rejection, um, unless you're famous, you, if you're famous, you can do whatever you want. And yes. we'll, we'll put you on the air. No problem. Uh, but uh, we'd love to hear your stories. All right, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time, Rejects.